is our uh, Bible Institute time. I say this every week, but it's, I'm going to keep saying it. So we do have a Bible Institute where you can earn an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree if you would like. Um, we have 117 or 18 courses online available to you. They're all free. They're from a variety of sources. Um, so there's some, uh, some great stuff on there. And um, we also are adding our own courses as we go. Uh, what we're doing here on Wednesday nights is, a, is becoming a course. What we're doing on the weekends also becomes courses. So if you didn't know that, that Be the Church series will also be a course that you can take. It's already happening online. And uh, you can do that. And so you're doing a big part of the work by just showing up. If you're taking it for credit, though, there's a little extra reading and a little, little more stuff. You've got to do a little paper to write. But uh, you can just come and hang out. You can take any of those courses for free. So... Um, check it out. There's 835 students, I believe, as of this morning from all over the world. We're adding new students all the time. So that's fun. So that's what we're up to. Right now we're doing a survey of the Old Testament, uh, which means we're working through the Old Testament fairly quickly. It's going to take, uh, we're going to do it over the course of three courses. So we'll break it down. We're going to run this course through First Samuel. Sometimes I think I'll do more than I'm going to do, but... Uh, I'm, I know that today I'm just going to try and get us through the book of Judges because uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens in Judges and then we'll see how we go with uh, where we go from there. So um, Judges is a fascinating book and uh, Judges is a, it's a time in the history of Israel when they're, when they're often invaded by enemies because they worship false gods. So if you remember from, you know, Joshua, they were they they finally got into the promised land and they were they were told not to worship false gods and to deal with the people that were in the land and to drive them out. Uh, And they didn't do that. Uh, And so now it's starting to cause them issues. And it happens already in the time of the judges and the judges were um, leaders that that God would raise up to deliver his people every time they sort of went through this sin cycle. And when you read through the book of Judges, you will see a definite sin cycle. It's what it's known. There's four phases to it. And what happens is the people of Israel, they forsake God. They, they just turn their back on God, start worshiping false gods. And, and when they do that, after a season, they're then oppressed by a foreign nation. A foreign nation rises up and oppresses Israel. Um, then the people of Israel repent. And then God rises up, raises up one of these judges who gathers everybody up to deliver them from this foreign nation. And this happens throughout the book of Judges. There's ten separate judges, and it's all the same thing. People, they get it back together. Uh, they, they go off in their own way, do their own thing. It doesn't work out at all. They repent. They say, oh, God, you were, you were right. We're wrong. We need you. And God raises up a deliverer. And then they walk that way for a little while. And then that sin cycle starts all over again. And they move back in that direction, which is kind of what sin looks like, uh, even in our own lives. You know, we, we can get off track, and then things don't go well, and then we cry out to God, and then we, we can be delivered from those things, but if we're not careful over time, we start heading in that direction again. So you see that throughout the book of Judges, and um, so that's very important. So uh, in the first chapter of Judges, uh, verse 28, when Israel became strong... They pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. If you remember from Joshua, the Canaanites were supposed to be dealt with completely, taken out of the picture, um, not to be around any longer. Uh, the, what they, they were supposed to press the, 
sort of dist- more distant cities that were less involved in Baal worship. They, they could do that to them, force them into labor. But in the, in the Canaanites in particular, they were supposed to drive them out, wipe them out, get rid of them, and they didn't do it. They did some of it, but didn't do it completely. And so it causes them a problem, which we find about in chapter 2. And uh, uh, verses 1 through 5, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So the angel of the Lord, I think we touched on that last week. That's often known as a theophany, sort of a, a pre-incarnate um, appearance of Jesus. And, and, uh, and so before he took on flesh, but he existed, he always has. Um, that's often what's happening with the angel of the Lord. And the, um, they challenge the Israelite, why didn't you do what I told you to do? And now that you haven't done it, you're going to have problems just like we said. And they named that place Bokim, which is interesting because in Hebrew, Bokim means weepers. So they were weeping. And, uh, and, and yet it was going to cause issues. And then what happens, which is sort of also something we have to be aware of, is that the, this generation, they don't teach their children about who God is and what God has done. And they completely forget about God. Judges 2.10 After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. So the Israelites didn't do what they were supposed to do, which was to teach their children about who God was and to remind Him. And, And the feasts and everything that they celebrate, were supposed to be celebrating, always had parts of their history involved in it so that the children always knew it. And... Why that's important for us as the church is we're supposed to be teaching our children so that they don't forget who God is. And every generation has to be taught and shown so that they don't forget and walk away and think, oh, that's just my parents thing. And it's uh, extremely important. That's why we, we, you know, we teach our kids and and you need to instruct your kids in the way of the Lord um, and let them be aware of the fact that there is a God so that uh, in one generation's time, otherwise people can completely forget about who the Lord is. So it's important that we continue to teach our children. But in Israel, they didn't. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. And it's going to start causing them problems. So by the time you get to Judges chapter 3, Israel has been um, uh, sort of overcome. And in Judges 3, 9, but they cry out to the Lord. That's that part of the sin cycle. And he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of uh, Kenaz, Caleb's, remember Joshua and Caleb's, younger brother who saved them. They, Othniel comes in. And he gets everybody together and they rise up against the the enemy and they settle things. And then for a little while, things go well for the people of Israel. But they turn, they start following false gods, they end up in trouble again. So so the first judge is Othniel. The second judge that um, comes up is a guy named Ehud or Ehud. Judges 3.15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord because they've gone off on that same trick. And he gives them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. Uh, the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. 
So the Moabites had come in and they'd over, they were oppressing the Israelites. So they cry out to God and they send Ehud. They, God rises up Ehud. And um, Ehud's a left-handed man, which was unusual. So he goes to see this king who's oppressing the people in Judges 3, 16 through 23. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. So because he was left-handed, which was unusual, um, if they were looking for a weapon, they would have looked wherever they should have been looking if you were right-handed. And I guess they wore them on opposite sides. And uh, his weapon, he didn't have a weapon there because he was left-handed. They had it on the other side. So he goes, he gets to pass through with his hidden weapon. And um, he presents this tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab, uh, who was, it's funny in the script, who was a very fat man. And after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. Uh, and uh, at the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a, a secret message for you, O king. And the king said, Quiet. And all his attendants left him. And Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, uh, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out on the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. That's how they dealt with that situation. So uh, sometimes the Bible is kind of interesting in the way it deals with stories. And then Ehud's, uh, the king's servants, they didn't want to bother him because they thought he was using the restroom for a long period of time. And so he bled out and died, and that was the end of him in the process. So uh, sometimes the Bible is extremely descriptive in what's happening. But that judge, that story comes up fairly often, so uh, you needed to hear about that. Then Shamgar is the third judge, Judges 3.31. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. So also during this period of time, you're going to see a lot of the Philistines are going to be a constant sort of problem to the people of Israel. And uh, so we'll be watching them in this process, sort of showing up and then being defeated and then showing up. Judges chapter 4, the next judge is Deborah. And uh, Judges 4, 4, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. So Deborah's there. Deborah leads the army of Israel in battle against the army of Jabin the king of Canaan, because they hadn't dealt with him when they were supposed to. And uh, the army of Jabin was led by a guy named Sisera. Sisera. And so the, the battle goes well for the people of Israel. And, and uh, then this is another interesting story. That some of these stories are kind of gruesome, but they're, they're there uh, on purpose. Judges 4, 17 through 24. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet um, Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. <laughs> he shouldn't have listened to that. He should have been very afraid. I don't know if you know what happens next. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering on him. I'm thirsty, he said, please give me some water. And she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If anyone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, uh, Eber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground 
and he died. Did, did you know that was coming? <laughs> that story came up. They told me in one of the, I think it was in the youth room. I don't think we tell the littler ones that story. And uh, the youth were shocked by it, and they were mostly shocked by the fact that she said, come on in, you don't need to be afraid, <laughs> and that she had lied to him. But it's, yes, she had. Um, and then uh, Barak came by pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to him and said, come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a ten peg through his temple, dead. Because that, that was the end result of that, yes. And on that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. Someone was uh, uh, sharing with me the other day how they find the Old Testament very difficult to read because of the mess in there. And I'm going to talk about this more on the weekend, but I'll give you a little heads up of what's happening. So when you read the Scripture and you get in some of these harder stories... Um, you have to hold in context that um, that the Scripture is divinely inspired literature. And and so you, it's a story. God, God has given us everything in stories because we remember stories. They're true stories, but we remember stories. If He just gave us facts, we, we don't remember facts. Like, uh, so you tend to remember things that you hear in stories. That's why Jesus taught in parables. They're far more impactful if you get it in stories. So the, the whole Bible is divinely inspired literature. It's his story. I tell you that all the time. Well, the two main types of historical literature were tragedy and comedy. Um, and, and so when we, when we hear the word comedy, we think of, you know, like uh, sitcoms or something. And that's not historical literature comedy. So the, the, what happens is tragedy... Historical, you know, literature, literary tragedy always starts high and ends low. It always starts up here and it ends not well. Uh, it's called gravitas in that language. Gravity is the direction of tragedy. Comedy always starts low and ends high. And that's levitas, levity. That's, you've heard that word levity in relationship to comedy. Well, the Bible, believe it or not, is comedy. Uh, not in funny, funny, ha-ha way, but it starts low and it ends high. Now, there's tragedies mixed in there, but it ends... And do you know historical comedies almost always ended with a wedding supper? So when, when the, the people started to read the scriptures were being written, like books like Revelation and stuff, they immediately knew what they were getting. Also, in a historic comedy, there's always a battle. Same, same with literature. There's... Uh, uh, there's always a battle in the middle. And in comedy, that battle's always won. And in tragedy, that battle's always lost. Uh, and so there's, there's battles. And we're, we're, this weekend, I'll work in some of the contrasts that are going on. Because like I said, in the midst of this comedy, there's these tragedies that are taking place. Well, I only tell you that when you, when you read the scripture, you need to know that it's comedy and it ends well. And that, that even though you may be in a hard spot... The Bible is good news from beginning to end it, it, because it's doing this, all right? It's levitas. It's levity. It's going from here, and it's ending in a wedding supper, and it's good news throughout. And so when you, when you read through hard stories and you see those things and you say, what's the point? It's just part of this story that's happening, and, and particularly in the Old Testament, it's, it's people who were promised this amazing life 
if they, if they would just do what they're supposed to do, which is follow God, and yet they choose to go their own way time after time after time. And so everything gets broken. But that's what happens with us. See, we, we're, we in, in Christ, now we have this amazing life and these promises now and forever. And, and, and yet the, the, the sin, the impact of sin has blown things, you know, just so messed up. But we always find life when we're following Jesus. It doesn't mean that we don't have difficult circumstances. It just means that's where life is. That's where we can be at rest and peace. Um, and, and so we need to be aware of that. And the mess and the consequences that are, that are there is because of our, our, all of us have chosen sin over time. And, and we've done this mess. But as you read through the scripture, if you ever feel, well, this is too hard or this is stuck, always know that it's part of this, this, this amazing piece of literature that ends in a wedding supper. And that the, the word of God is true. Don't 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 read it though like a like a textbook, like a science book. It's not that. It's it's amazingly divinely inspired literature, and you read it that way, and that's when the truth of it really will set you free in the process. Judges chapter five is all about the song of Deborah. You should read that. It recounts the battle that she was in. Judges six. Most of you are going to know about this guy. Judge number five was Gideon. Most of you have heard about Gideon, right? Uh, and uh, who Gideon was. Uh, and we have another theophany in Judges 6. Um, the angel of the Lord shows up. Let me read it, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in um, Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now that's kind of funny too. So now the Midianites have, are oppressing Israel. And every time Israel does anything good, the Midianites sweep in and they take it. Any harvest that they have, anything, the Midianites just come in and take whatever they want. Um, and so Gideon is he's trying to um, deal with some wheat. He's trying to thresh some wheat. But he's down in a wine press. So a wine press is a, in a sunken area of land. That's where they would press the wine. But when you're threshing wheat, you need air. Because what they would do is basically throw it up and, and the air would hit it and it would do the separating that needed to happen. Well, he's down in a pit where there's no air, and so it's almost an impossible process, and he's doing it because he's hiding, because he doesn't want the Midianites to see what's going on. And so that's kind of uh, funny when, when, the, when the Lord says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. He was not standing up being a mighty warrior at that moment. He was hiding down in a wine press trying to get a little wheat threshed. So uh, it's kind of interesting in the process. And so, but God calls him and says, you're going you're gonna to be the next one to deliver the people. Gideon doesn't believe it. Um, Judges 6, 36 through 40. And you know, he's going to put out a fleece. Most of you have heard that, right? He's going to put out a couple. Of, lots of people still like the fleece. Gideon says to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as promised, look, I'm going to place this wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you'll save Israel by my hand as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day, and he squeezed the fleece and wrung out uh, the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And that night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. So uh, it, it wasn't really enough that the angel of the Lord had appeared and told him what he was going to do. He's like, well, just to be sure, let's do a fleece. And God does that one. And just to be double sure, let's do another fleece. So... That's what's happening in Gideon's fleece. And then um, in, in uh, Judges 7, Gideon says, okay, Judges 7, 1 through 8, early in the morning, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Herod, uh, and the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. 
And the Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Uh, announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. <laughs> so 22,000 men left. He had 32,000. 22,000 said, That's me. And out they go. So now he's got 10,000 guys. But the Lord says to Gideon, There's still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I'll sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord said to him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. And 300 men lapped with their hands to the mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, With these 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So, and apparently the, the picture there is, this would have been the, not the swiftest group of 300. That's, that's what he's saying to you. You, you kind of get 300. We used the word before in the scripture, but never, anyway, you get those guys. So Gideon uh, sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. And now the camp of Midian lay uh, below him in the valley. So Gideon actually defeats the Midianite army with 300 men because God helps. Judges 7, 9 through 22. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up and go down against the camp because I'm going to give it to your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura and his servants, uh, so he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples that settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands and dividing 300 men into three companies. So he's going against his army that's thicker than locusts, camels you can't even count, with three companies of 100 guys. He placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he said, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. And Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just after they changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. Three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpet they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And when the three hundred trumpeters sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the army fled to Beth Shittah towards Zerath as far as the border of Abel Maholoth near Tabith. I also told you this. When you're reading names in the Old Testament, just act like you know what you're saying. So they win. They, they end up killing each other. The Midianites and the Amalekites turn on each other, kill everybody, and Gideon and his 300 guys win. So God gets the victory there. And... Uh, Judges 9, there's a guy named Abimelech, but he's not usually considered to be one of these ten judges. He was more of a sort of temporary petty king. 
then in Judges 10, we're up to Tola. Uh, and uh, he was in for a while. Jair in uh, Judges 10. and Judges 11, you get Jephthah. Uh, and he was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. Judges 12, Ibzan. And then uh, Elon uh, also. And Abdon in the process. Uh, and then the last judge that we're going to get... I think he's the last judge, is um, Samson. And, uh, And when you start reading this part of the book of Judges, Judges encompasses about 335 years, and it uh, it overlaps the book of 1 Samuel. Remember that when we get there, the first 40 years or so of the 1 Samuel, because the Philistines are still causing problem. And uh, and, uh, so Judges 13, 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And that 40-year oppression is dealt with in the end of 1 Samuel 7.13. So there's an overlap when we get there. Uh, Judges 13 through 16, that's Samson's judgeship. That goes about 20 years, lasts about 20 years. You guys know most of the story of Samson, right? And uh, he had tremendous strength until he was uh, Delilah um, convinced him to cut his hair. That's where all his strength was. And they eventually kill him. They blind him and kill him. But he, uh, he actually sort of using him for sport and he pushes the pillars out of the deal and it collapses on all of them and he kills a whole bunch of them in the process so you can read all of that and uh, Judges uh, as I said covers about 335 years so then Judges chapter 17 and 18 um, are sort of an appendix and they deal with the idol worship um, and particularly about the tribe of Dan being involved in that and so it's sort of considered then that the tribe of Dan was so involved in idol worship that they're actually excluded from the tribes and you don't read about them in Revelation 7. You get all the others. That's how far off base they got in the process. And uh, chapters 19 and 21 through 21 are sort of another appendix for the book and they record the, the corruption and the immorality that's just running rampant in Israel. And, and Judges has this sign, send-off that's kind of scary. Judges 21:25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And that's a very scary time when everybody's just doing what they think is right. Yeah, there's no more chaotic, scary time than that. There's no order at all in the process. So that's kind of a quick look through the book of Joshua. Uh, read through some of those scriptures. I kind of had to cruise there towards the end to get us done in time. But fascinating book. And then uh, next next time we're together, we'll be looking at the book of Ruth, one of my favorites. I probably shouldn't take the whole time on it, but I probably will. So uh, there you go. That's what's coming up. If you're watching my video, thanks for watching. And uh, we look forward to seeing you when we can. Bye. Thanks for watching this broadcast from Keys Vineyard Community Church in Big Pine Key, Florida. Be sure to like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more information, log on to keysvineyard.com. We'll see you next time.